Let's pretend that this isn't advice. And I'm Erin, and I'm not giving you advice. It's it's not advice. I can't help myself <laughs> give advice. I don't mean to. I don't want to. I want you to be able to live your life, but I know how to do it. I'm a huge know-it-all, and this is where I practice not giving advice to people. Except I totally give advice to them. I'm a lawyer turned professional certified coach, and I just happen to give the best advice. But this is a podcast, not a coaching session, so I obviously don't do that here, except I do. This is not advice with Erin Conlon, your know-it-all lawyer coach friend. This is not advice. On today's episode of This Is Not Advice, I talk with Mark James Heath. Mark is a community organizer, a comedian, a kind, brilliant father and husband, and poet. And what I love about this episode is that Mark and I talk about what it means to give and receive help. We talk about white supremacy. We talk about freaking everything, frankly. It was um, one of my favorite episodes, and I think that there's something in it for everyone, fatherhood, I don't, you know, I don't, I can't speak to fatherhood, but I do think that if you're a man, you might get something out of it. You can find Mark at Mark James Heath on Instagram or Twitter. And I highly suggest you follow him and keep up with him because he's up to really cool things. Additionally, you know, I do this because I have a business as well, and it is your last chance to sign up for Embrace and Empower. So if this is something that you have been thinking about, it starts next week. I do not accept people after the program starts. So today's the day. Give me a call or email me, and um, I really look forward to hearing from you. Have a great day. Enjoy this conversation with the brilliant and uh, compassionate Mark James Heath. Hey, Mark. Hey. Uh, Thanks for being on my show. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you for having me, and thank you for having the show. Oh, yeah. You know, like there's not enough podcasts out there. So I really thought that I would uh, fill that hole in the market. (laughs) Feed that need. Right. There's a shortage. (laughs) Uh, Mark, who are you? (laughs) Um, Who am I? Uh, I'm Mark James Heath. I am a a poet, comedian and producer. I essentially partner with um, community organizations and nonprofits. I say community organizations because some of them don't have that legal paperwork just yet. to uh, create like programming and events and like outreach events and fundraiser events um, to help them better serve our community, essentially. Wow, that's cool. Thank you. How did that start? (laughs) Well, uh, I'm Black. Um, That's probably information that some people wouldn't know listening to this. right. I'm Black. So like way before I was born, apparently... It was this whole thing with, um, you know, uh, what can be called like white supremacy or imperialism heard, and colonialism, mm-hmm. patriarchy, various things of this sort that have um, just made regular everyday life an unnecessary struggle. You know, they've been denying us our inalienable human rights for a while. Mm-hmm. So like I was just kind of born smack into the middle of that, that scrap and I was like, all right, I, I want to, I'm raised to, you know, stand up for myself and and all of those things. And literally like 
the only way that I in this country can read and write at all, let alone read and write for like a living and get like accolades and respect for it mm-hmm. is because um, all of the people who came before me formed a community and just organized and just fought back. So I just kind of started that as soon as I could think to start it. So I've always been volunteering with organizations or always been working in social justice or homelessness or um, something to that effect ever since I was like a little kid. Uh, And I always wanted to be a comedian. I never wanted to be anything else. And so growing up, there's all these arts programs in Chicago that are specifically um, community building spaces for people and mm-hmm. spaces to empower people. And it's all centered around art. It's all centered around you being a, a poet or a dancer or an actor or whatever. And those people became my community. And I was like, I'm going to go out and make it in show business. Uh, and then, you know, I kind of got knocked around trying to make it in show business and my mental health kind of suffered a great deal. And I just yeah. got to the point where I was like, I don't really want to do a lot of this stuff that I'm doing. Like I love to be a stand. I love doing stand up, and I love comedy, but like the rat race of like strategically trying to chase specific things, mm-hmm. you find yourself performing places or, you know, jumping through hoops to perform places. And when you really step back, you're like, I don't really care about this at all. Like I could be spending my life better than this maybe. And then just being like, okay, well, let's completely reroute this thing and think from the basis of like, what do I want to do every day? Mm -hmm. And I want to work in this community that I've always been a part of that's always helped me. I want to actually be participating in that. Um, Otherwise, life isn't really sustainable for me. I kind of get very ill internally. Mm -hmm. Um, And then it was like, well, what do I know how to do? I know how to I know how to do stand up. I know how to write. I know how to produce shows. What if I did that for them instead of trying to do it for, you know, a comedy network or something? What if I shifted that focus? How how's it going? It's going pretty good now. We're in we are in the beginning stages of it becoming like a real actual factual thing where yeah. I'm putting together these uh I have a writing uh, what's called a uh, performance therapy writing workshop that I do um, at a couple of homeless youth drop-in shelters. I have a, a show, a fundraiser um, comedy show that I run um, with this organization called the Whirlwind Center. I'm doing different work with like these mentoring organizations. I'm working on this artist grant with the Logan Foundation. Like all of these different things have just sort of happened recently. But to get into it, it's very similar to how you get into stand up. You just volunteer at first. You just mm-hmm. go where they do the work and you just start doing the work. And for that period of time, it was no money and no real sense of direction on how this is going to go. Just me volunteering my time and and trying stuff out with people. And now it's finally at a place where it's like, oh, okay, this is how I'm going to pay bills. And this is how I'm going to actually add value to the community outside of just the service, but them also generating money for them as well. Yeah. I mean, it's really interesting how just pretty much Outside of any white collar like office job, the way to start doing anything is show up. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like, exactly. 
<laughs> you 100%. just like literally have to go to the place and show up and you're like, all right, I'm here to learn. Mm-hmm. 100%. And like, um, just figuring out how you can add some sort of value, even just the smallest little thing that you have that you can just throw in there that they can use, showing up and doing that like consistently. And then eventually, you know, things become illuminated like, oh, I could, you guys don't have this or you don't have that or you don't know about this thing. And then that's when the real big opportunities sort of, sort of come. Yeah. So tell me about this performance art therapy. Like, I, I'm just so curious about why performance and writing and art is therapeutic. Well, in this particular sense, and I hesitate to like uh, present it as therapy or some sort of counseling because I'm not, I don't have those credentials. I mean, right. I've taken like workshops in like trauma-informed care and um, like mental health first aid. And I'm like a mandated reporter and all of these various other things. Mm-hmm. But like, I don't have any sort of license to be a therapist. Um, but basically what we do is um, I start with like a piece of art that is somehow... Um, connected to some sort of bold emotional statement. Um, And there's plenty of that. There's plenty of like different pieces of art that are modern or that are even like more classic that I can like look at this James Baldwin clip or look at this Richard Pryor clip or look at this Lil Nas X video or look at this, you know, um, Kendrick Lamar video or whatever. And then we can talk about those themes and immediately people start relating that to something in their life. And we get into this sort of cathartic space where we can start to unpack certain ideas. Mm-hmm. Then they make something and they make something with their imagination. Um, they don't need anything other than themselves. And then they come up with an actual thing that we uh, then lead workshops later on in the process about how you can like register your things for intellectual property and, you know, start to collect royalties on stuff if people use your stuff in other places or if you ever do you know, publish your song lyrics or any of that kind of stuff. We kind of give a little bit of information, breaking that down to how you get into the intellectual property business. So it's like you are kind of practicing this autonomy and this self-awareness and kind of working through these things. And mm-hmm. then specifically for the purposes of the youth drop-in shelter, we use it as kind of a way to get them in there, but also to like get information out of them about what their ideas are and dreams and hopes and daily challenges are. And then it becomes like a a cool way to do referrals and be like, okay, you know, you mentioned how you have a baby on the way where there's this, this service and this program and, you know, their housing services, their job services, their how to get into school services, there's ESL services, there's record expungement things and like how to transition from being incarcerated to like being in the community. All these things that people need that they don't necessarily know about that I we have connections to because it's smack dab in the middle of a social service space. It's in a drop-in yeah. shelter. So it's like, it's a real easy alley-oop to be like, you like writing raps. Now that you've done that, let me tell you about all this other stuff that you can use to kind of get on your feet. What I hear about that is like attracting people based upon what's interesting to them Mm -hmm. and taking care of them in the way that they need to be taken care of. Like, you know, people will tell you. And also in my experience, there's a lot of shame that comes from asking for help. Mm -hmm. 
But if there's not like a need to feel shame, if it's just kind of offered to you, it is way more interesting and intriguing. Like, oh, somebody will help me. Yeah, 100%. And people genuine, it's so much shame that's associated with it that's internalized. People rarely even think to do it. It's Mm -hmm. not even something that crosses people's minds all the time to be like, I should ask someone to help me with this. It's just something that they... They're like, I'm going to figure this out one day. And it's like, you're sitting right here <laughs> where <laughs> I could just help you. Like, you really don't understand. And that's that kind of was the impetus for the whole thing of like, we should do fun stuff at libraries and community centers because people don't know how much is like right here in this neighborhood that could help them because, you know, it's boring. It's a boring idea or a boring concept, but there are plenty of people who need a lot of these services that are being provided, who just are not aware that they exist. And if we can really make the center of the community, if everybody in the community is like, yeah, I know about that community center right there. I saw a comedy show there or a play there or a film festival there. Then it like becomes this, this place where people hang out and they can get that information. Yeah. And it's almost like because it's community and not service, like there's the community of side by side, whereas services sometimes feel like top down. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like it's the non paternalistic version of taking care of people. Exactly. Exactly. That whole paradigm of like shifting out of the idea that is um, the term is like community centric, basically. Mm-hmm. It's like shifting out of that idea of there being this like savior or this class situation where the people up here are going to help the people down here and really sort of helping people understand how much they can help themselves. And then like, I am literally like, I kind of tried to illustrate earlier with the whole reading and writing thing. It's like, I'm literally a byproduct of this. Mm -hmm. You know, I was ever since I can remember, there's been somebody who has been working on my behalf in some way, whether it's, laser intentional of like, I'm doing this for you. Like I only write because the adults in my community at some point notice that I'm always carrying a notebook and I don't talk as much. And they're like, Hey, write a, write a poem. And I'm like, all right, sure. And then all of a sudden it's like, (laughs) now I'm a poet, you know, or because somebody's like, read this Langston Hughes. I'm like, okay. And now it opens up this whole world. So it's really what I find for most people, no matter what their circumstances, that element of like having a community is mm-hmm. like the difference between success and failure for most people. It's just having access to people who care about you. Well, you know, you probably know this because you're in the recovery space, but they did all those studies based upon addiction in rats or mice. And like part of what caused so many of those rodents to go back to whatever the addictive substance was, was when they didn't have a community supporting them Mm -hmm. when they were lonely or when like, I don't know, trust me, I am butchering the science on this. (laughs) (laughs) Totally butchering it. I am not a scientist. And I remember reading this article about just like why beings, rats, (laughs) Who are not subject to white supremacy, to my knowledge, but like, (laughs) (laughs) who knows? I don't. Who knows though, right? I mean, white supremacy runs deep, so (laughs) (laughs) I'm always surprised at where I find it. It always shocks me. So 
Really? Where's like the most surprising place that you found it? Uh, inside of myself. It's pretty scary. Uh, yeah. <laughs> we are like, oh, I have that bias because um, I, I have that same bias and, and it makes no sense. Um, yeah, that's the scariest places when you when you um, have to confront these ideas of not being good enough or um, black people as a group not being good enough, just based on that always sort of being the narrative. Um, and yeah, that's a, that's a pretty big thing to like unlearn or, or a thing that gets unpacked often amongst people who are trying to do community work in the community Mm is, is getting, getting around this idea that it's like, oh, we are in this position because we have some sort of moral or intellectual failing, um, rather than again, looking inward for like what it is that we have that we can use to improve, you know, operating under the assumption that it's like, we're missing whatever it is we're supposed to have. You know, they have it. We don't have it. You know, they're in a good spot. We're in a bad spot. Yeah. it It's really complicated and it's also super simple, right? Like this mm-hmm. idea that, you know, it, let's say you're a, a white person born on third base and you hit like the being born on third base and being thinking that you hit a home run is not mm-hmm. exactly the same thing. And then, you know, to go back to your community center of like their community centered services, there's also like the matter of where resources actually exist. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like you're making do w- with a lot less at sometimes but that doesn't necessarily mean you don't have what you need. Yeah. And, um, and just the idea of like how valuable you are, like in particular with African-American people, the whole it's, it's, you know, it's like the matrix for lack of a better, a lack of a okay, better Okay. Please analogy. tell me more. Let's, let's turn. <laughs> um, even though side, quick side note, the matrix is actually based on, I wish I knew this woman's name, but the matrix and Terminator are actually both based on this book written by this black woman. Um, and they, and she had to like sue them to get the money back, but. Oh really? Man, they like co-opted her story. Her yeah. They, took her story and those two ideas, the matrix series and the Terminator series are based off this book. And I wish I knew this lady's name, but anyway, the whole concept of the matrix is that like, there's this lie that is being told to your brain. You're like plugged up to this machine and it's running this really, really like senses stimulating facade to trick you into, you know, them siphoning your energy to -hmm. work for them. It's like you are, how how they run is off of you. And the only reason that you don't disconnect from them um, is because you're kind of distracted by all this stuff that they're throwing at you. So it's like black people were from the sort of the foundation of our relationship to this country. They have us here because they're using us for our value. They're taking something from us and using it to support their machine. So whenever you step back and think, wow, what a, what a massive machine this is. It's like, well, we kind of, we're building this. We're a part of it. That whole argument, even of like, we want a seat at the table Well, we should build our own table. It's like, well, we built this one, you know, they didn't mm-hmm. build it without us. Um, and so understanding that it's like, oh, I'm valuable to them. I yeah. can be valuable to myself too. 
It's so hard like to remember that you can be valuable to yourself. It's extremely hard. It's extremely hard for everybody. And that's another thing. It's like there's this weird social situation that you're dealing with. But like at the end of the day, these this is this is how human beings sort of all think and function and work. Mm-hmm. It's like we all need the support of one another and we all need to like really understand our value and how our actions have value. Um, Cause if you don't get that, then you also don't get how um, that's how you wind up living your life. Like, Oh, everything is pushing me around. It's like, yeah. once you accept like, no, what I do makes a difference. Yep. Then it's like, if I don't like what's happening, I can do something else. I have to, I remind my clients of that distinction a lot. Like you do. So there's a difference between like, being a victim of something and walking around being victimized by life. Mm -hmm. So like the example I'll use is, yeah, you can get hit by a bus. And it is true that you are the victim of a bus accident, but how you recover from being hit by a bus is an entirely different thing. You Mm -hmm. can choose a way of being that is like, I'm going to Tom Brady cryogenically a plus my way out of being hit by a bus, or you can be like, this is the worst thing that ever happened to me. Mm-hmm. Why? Right. And your recovery is going to be shaped by how you are about it. Like your how you recover from that event will be shaped by your mindset and by your willingness. Mm-hmm. And if you're not taught how to be more willing <laughs> or be mm-hmm. more resilient, then it's going to be really hard for you. And, um, Oh, well, first, I just want to say real quick, I don't see my, like, voice on the thing. And so I'm I do. wondering. Oh, okay, it's cool. Safe. All right, good business. Um, And then, like, not to get too deep, I guess, but, like, with no, us. No, get deep. That's what this is for. <laughs> Let's get deep. <laughs> with us, and when I say us, really everybody, but specifically in the case of, like, Black people, women, such and such, um, those muscles to sort of, like, um, think, oh, I can recover or I can, I I can, I'm a value. I can, I can like get, climb my way out of this Mm -hmm. have been historically and structurally like attacked. It's not even just so much that it's like, Oh, we did this thing to you a long time ago and we just let it go. It's like the biggest thing that's happening. I feel like right now in terms of a social movement is women and black people and, and people who haven't been allowed to take up space pushing back against people just shrinking them down, mm-hmm. you know, um, especially with women. I feel like I've seen this my entire life because, you know, black women experience this obviously as well. So like working in the community, it's women, it's women all day. That's all it is, is women everywhere. And, and the theories that we're using to do this, like kitchen table work and all of this stuff, it's all women's stuff. It's all stuff that they came up with organizing, that's why we have like rape crisis centers and hotlines mm-hmm. and any of this type of stuff. It's because women have are the ones behind the scenes who organize these things. When it comes to money and glory, you start to see women less. If you're looking on the ground where the work is being done, it's women, highly qualified, highly skilled, highly dedicated women mm-hmm. who are like who don't even give themselves very much room to fail at what they do. They like knock stuff out and the people who get the credit mostly or the people who get the biggest checks will not look like that. 
it'll be mm-hmm. it'll be men taking up those spaces. It's like just that idea, you know, fighting against just that idea of like that has to stop or that can't that can't keep going, you know, um, is a big sort of thing. It's like we have to um, stand up for each other's right to sort of and protect each other's right to sort of exist and take up space. So that's kind of the other idea with having a community show where it's like come by and hang out and take up space here and be comfortable because typically that is something that's reserved for people who can pay for it. Um, but if you are homeless, um, I want you to be able to come and, and to a comedy show and get a meal and, and hang out and sit your stuff down and not worry about somebody you know arresting you or stealing it from you or whatever. Just that little gesture is to be like, you need to take up space here. Yeah. Well, you're a human too. You deserve joy. Like just being mm-hmm. houseless does not mean that you don't get to laugh or right. ever have a moment of safety or peace. And I don't know about you, but I've been in situations where I haven't felt safe, where I've been so concerned about X, Y, and Z. And in those when I've been in that place in my life, like everything is harder. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like even choosing, like I thankfully have never had the issue of not having enough to eat, but even choosing what to eat in those moments is exponentially harder than it was for me when I do feel safe. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's really the keys to the whole thing. Um, as far as like the, the concept of people being able to like stand up for themselves and improve their situation, but more so like how that betters like society in general or the idea of privilege, mm-hmm. of being privileged. It's not that life is easy for anybody or that people have an easy time, but it's like there's certain things that you never have to worry about. That just yep. never, that's just never a problem for you. And that already puts you in a position where you can do more and you can see further for somebody else where it's like, you know, I work with homeless young people, most of whom are trans identifying or queer identifying and are black. So like in Chicago, hanging out in like Boys Town or whatever the the space is for queer identifying people, it's traditionally a place where people who have some money can live. You Mm -hmm. know, so it's, it's seen as, and people in general act like queerness is a white thing um, mm-hmm. uh, or trans being trans is a white thing when it's like, no, there's a whole bunch of like transgender black people, transgender black kids running around and it's not safe for them to be anywhere. So they are homeless. Right. It's like even working with them, I have to remember it's like I'm privileged. I got a place. To, I pay bills. I got an ID. You know, um, I got a couple of degrees on the wall. All of that lets me in rooms automatically. Just I don't even have to ask. I don't even have to worry about having access to that. And for them, those things are struggles just for them to be able to travel to the same places I can travel to and talk to the same people I can talk to. I'm a hetero cisgender guy. I got a wife. I got kids. All of that allows me to kind of just step to the front of the line sometimes and speak. And people go, oh, well, let's listen to this person. <laughs> he, he's, a, he's, a, he's a masculine presenting man. He has kids. He has a wife. You know, what, what, what's he have to say about this? Um, so the biggest part about it is like using that to create space for people who don't have it. 
You know, mm-hmm. it's like, oh, okay, I have your attention because I'm a guy. Good. My sis has something to say right here. Sis, you know, like take the floor because otherwise yeah. they're overlooking these people. Um, I went to a, I went to a conference last year and one of the people was a coach from South Africa. And what she said, I have it on a post-it note. It is right in front of me. I look at it every day. But she said, keep your power, use your power, share your power. And it sounds like that's kind of how you are creating your whole life. Yeah. Yeah. I hope so. Um, I hope so. I feel like it's uh, how I have power in the first place. Somebody just kind of handed it off to me. Uh, maybe. <laughs> or maybe you claimed it because it's yours. Like. To, to that whole value piece that we were talking about, you know, I think so many, so often we conflate value with mon- with money. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I think that power, like personal power, is way more valuable than a dollar. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I think what's funny is I, I feel like show business as a, a business has really proven that to people. It's really shown so many people who it's like, oh, they're rich and famous and they are somehow powerless or they're somehow suffering at the highest level of human suffering. And it's like, that person is successful, you know, and it's yeah. like, but somehow they rather, they, they rather not be in the position that they're in. Well, I mean, I think Britney Spears is the perfect example of that. She's so powerless. Oh, gosh. Yeah. That's she- crazy. I mean, it is crazy. Like as a lawyer, I'm always in, I have a particular bent towards hearing about things like that. Just like, what does the the law say? Mm -hmm. And it is wild to me that a 27 year old woman's entire financial rights have been given up for 10 years. 10 years. It's, it's really trippy. Like, um, I was, uh, I was on the internet. I was on like Facebook or something. And it talked about how, um, with some article about how her new boyfriend, how she wants her new like guy to sign a prenup or something like that, and this and one and this woman commented something like, "Oh, love is a business now, I guess, or everything's a business." And I'm like, "Well, first of all, marriage has always been a business. Yes, like, it is. <laughs> period. But yeah, if you love Britney Spears, like for real, like if you're really gonna be her husband." And you would you should sign a prenup, dude. Like 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 that's what you should do. Like this grown <laughs> woman has never really had control of her money. Like that that should be the first thing you do just on some boundaries, like respecting type stuff. Like you deserve to control your money for the rest of your life. I don't want any to impede that in any way. Yeah. Um, you know who didn't have a prenup? Jeff Bezos. <laughs> really? Really. Mackenzie Bezos, and he, they've split up in two, 2019, maybe. And mm. she got $40 billion or something nice. out of that divorce, Jeez. which is not nearly like half of what the thing was worth. But she has given away billions of dollars over the past 18 months. That it's like insane. blood money to her. So if you would need a grant. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, now that you mention it. I mean, I'm kind of playing and I'm also kind of not playing. Like, Mm -hmm. it is an interesting 
position to be in. What happens if the person that you married who, you know, was an entrepreneur and they were like doing fine, but maybe not necessarily the empire building monster that Jeff, Be- Jeff Bezos has turned into. Mm-hmm. What do you do with that money? That's partially yours. Uh, it's an, it's back to that like power and privilege thing. It's real specific to mm-hmm. wherever you happen to be standing, I would think. Isn't it? It's like, uh, anyway, okay. <laughs> back to you. So, What's something about you that like you've struggled with but are working through? Um, right now I struggle with being with being rigorously honest. Um I've like been able to, you know, I'm good with words and stuff mm-hmm. like that. So it's like there's always a way to and you totally get this. Um there's always a way to like frame something or position something or say something um to get us to paint a certain picture in people's minds mm-hmm. um and anything that i do if i'm honest with myself <laughs> anything i'm doing i'm doing it to myself there's no way to lie to everyone about something but i tell myself the truth it's like you're telling you you're lying to yourself um yeah. so like being really really true to myself and not um, not, not exaggerating on either end. It's not the greatest thing that's ever happened ever. And it's not like the worst thing. I'm not, um, the worst human being of all time, but I'm mm-hmm. also not, everything is not perfect. These things do need to be worked on. And all of that has sort of, that sort of core idea has sort of translated into asking for help more, um, accepting help more, um, being more forthcoming when things are not going well, um, taking a second when it's like you're irritable or you're frustrated or you're kind of, um, you know, losing your ability to like reason and communicate with the people around you and be like, what's going on with me that I'm like falling apart in this moment or I'm having this disconnect rather than reveling in this idea that it's like, well, everybody's against me. Or these mm-hmm. people suck or these people are stupid or these people should get what I'm trying to say, especially when 99% of the time I'm around my the most valuable people in the world to me, my wife and my children. So if it's like they don't understand or they don't get it or I'm not coming through somehow, having that moment to like stop and be honest about my motivations. Is this really for the best of the family or is this an ego thing? Is this a I'm the man. I want to do this thing. Like, let's really unpack all of this stuff as much as possible. So just really being honest with myself for real in like letter and spirit is kind of mm. the, the great struggle of my life, I would say. How do you define rigorous honesty? Um, there's no room for it to be like untrue. Um and, you know, I feel like there's a way to tell the truth where it's like someone else where it's like if I um, if I when I was drinking and stuff like that, like it's like, oh, I'm going to go uh, take the baby for a walk. And, yeah, I do. I go and I push the stroller down the street. I might be smoking. I might smoke weed first and then push the stroller down the street. But I'm pushing the stroller down the street. Rigorous honesty is like. 
letting people know that I'm actually smoking weed and mm-hmm. <laughs> having this whole arrangement of I'm going to smoke weed and I'm going to run errands, but you don't know that I'm smoking weed. You just know about the errands. Um, rigorous honesty is like me um, being being really honest about uh, why something isn't working. It's like honesty when it's hard, hard honesty, mm. pretty much is what it is. Yeah. For me, that kind of rigorous honesty is like in the very small things. It is never exactly. in the big stuff. I am so much better at being honest about big stuff than I am about small stuff. Oh, for sure. And for, for me, sure. it's not like dishonesty as much as omission. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Well, I won't pay attention to that. Right. We won't highlight this particular part of of the story. We'll just kind of, you know, we'll say we have a loud part and a quiet part. Like that whole, <laughs> whole kind of structure to it. Yeah, for sure. But the biggest thing with me being rigorously honest with myself is the whole asking for help piece or just mm-hmm. being like, hey, everybody, that plan I had, I'm behind on it or it's not working out. It's not going well, you know, Um Cause I'm just, yeah, I'm just from the school of like, just like how I've been struggling with this whole community service comedy thing for a while. And it's just now really getting to the place where it's like, yes, I do this in mm-hmm. a way that I can say I am a grown up professional who gets paid to do this. But yeah. the thought, pro- but the, the, the like school of thought around how you handle that mostly is as soon as you start, it's like, Hey, I'm, I do this. I'm a professional. It's going great. You know, and that's the face you have to put on for people. Yeah, because so it's, it it's this idea that people won't believe you if it's not going great and then exactly. they won't buy in. Mm-hmm. And it's, yeah. So like showing that struggle or admitting that it is a struggle is something that I'm doing that I wouldn't have done, you know, two, three years ago if I was doing this same thing. I'd just be hitting all of the highlights of it and trying to convince you that it's this winning formula. Yeah. I mean, I have that too. I'm a solo entrepreneur. Like a lot of this stuff that I do is on my own. I have people I work with, but you know, there are times when I'm like, I just want everyone to think I'm doing great. And then there are days when I'm like, I just want to lie on my couch and watch Grey's Anatomy and not look <laughs> at all of the things that are going on. <laughs> yeah, for real. It's a lot. And that other side of it too, of like not, um, not tearing myself down or tearing myself to pieces. And having no grace for myself. That's also a part of just lies, just things mm. that are not actually true. I'm not actually the person that I tell myself I am. Yeah. One of the things that like fundamentally changed my life many years ago was the idea that I could be my own best friend. Mm. Like if I wouldn't talk to my friend that way, why would I talk to myself that way? Facts. Is there anything for you that has stuck with you in that? regard uh, being a parent what do you mean uh you tell you give your i give my kids the best advice that i can think of mm. um and i always think of them as good and redeemable um they never come to me with a problem or a mistake and i think well that's because you're a failure and a loser and an idiot and you'll never make it and i can and time is so much the relativity of time is so different to have an eight-year-old or a nine-year-old be like, but this, I can't draw this. And I just don't know how. And it's like, you're nine years old. Like, keep drawing. You know, by the time you're 11, (laughs) 
you'll have it together. And then when you think about that in terms of your own life, like, yeah, all right, you're 37, but if you spend the next four or five years moaning about what you don't know how to do, then you still won't know how to do it four or five years from now. You can still improve your life. Like, so most of the time I find myself in a situation or that that need to be in a situation, be embarrassed to me. Like, I'm going to lie my way out of this. Or I'm going to fake my way out of this. It's like, if that was my kid, I would be like, no, we love you. Come out, come out of hiding. Let's see what you have. Let's deal with this. So it's like, take that same advice, be that same person. Cause that's the only way, that's the only way they're going to do it. If I tell them to do it and then yeah. they see that I don't do it because they see all the stuff that I do that I don't know that they see, mm-hmm. then it's like they're really thinking like, no, I'm not going to try this this uh, this idea that my dad is talking about. I'm going to live my life the way I see life being lived. It sounds like your kids are your biggest accountability structure. <laughs> <laughs> Oh shit! I think that's true, and I don't know if that's good. I won't tell them. We'll let them figure that out when they're thirty. Man, yo, that might be right. And then, yeah, that's that's probably not good though. Um, yes, yes, for sure. Well, I think so long as you're not making them like them hold you accountable, but you're using like, how would I want them to see me? Mm-hmm. That's a totally different way of holding yourself or being held accountable. Mm, yeah, yeah. And it definitely, I know for me, like for years, I would um, I would like contemplate suicide, like really ever since I was really little. But like for years, I would contemplate suicide and get really into the contemplation of it, like mm. just lost in it. And then one day it was just pretty super clear, like, are you going to kill yourself? No, you're really not. Like, <laughs> just be for real about that. Like, think about how that whatever you're doing that you feel like is so wrong or so horrible that you feel like you shouldn't be here anymore. If you actually weren't, that would be significantly worse for everybody who you care about. So you're not really going to do that. So just, you know, when you have that thought, go ahead and send it on its way. Like, don't sit mm-hmm. here for days like, oh, I wonder... And like make a plan that you're not going to actually go through with and all this stuff. And my family is a big part of that. Kids really, kids really do just like want you. Um, and they're perfectly fine for you to not be able to afford stuff. They're perfectly fine for you to be like, I don't know the answer to that question. Like none of that stuff rocks their world at all. As long as you like show up genuinely, they're so cool with that. So it becomes a thing where it's like, um, it's just a good reason to show up. It's, like, okay, it's a yeah. great reason to show up. Do when you know when you were just talking about that, I was like, oh man, we forget that. Like, there's some point in our lives that we forget that showing up is is good enough. When did you forget it? Oh wow, that's a good question. I don't know. I I don't remember feeling like showing up was good enough. I don't remember feeling like that. That's something that I feel like I'm just now kind of getting. An understanding uh-huh. of, and I feel like I should go back and like apologize to my mother because it's like, <laughs> oh, you just wanted me to show up. Okay. I really felt like I needed to be, you know, mm-hmm. great for people to like me or for people to accept me. Um, and that's where the beginning of like presenting myself a certain kind of way even comes from. It's just like, oh, people need a reason 
for me to take up space here. Otherwise, it's like, who is this dude? Like, get out of here. Um, so, yeah, I'm j- I feel like I'm just now being like, oh, I just have to show up and people are cool with that. Yeah. Well, I mean, I forget it. And the other thing, it's so easy to receive people as they are. But if you are in a, a framework where you have to be perfect, inadvertently, whether you mean to or not, one of the things that I'm learning is that I make other people feel like they have to be that way too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like who wants to work with somebody who's a rigorous perfectionist and never has any room for compassion? <laughs> exactly. Especially when it's a lie. Like, like if you yeah. think you really can nail this perfectly, like you're not being honest with yourself about how this actually works. Like you're making mistakes for sure. You won't know until you do, but there's stuff that, you know, everybody, everybody, no matter who they are and no matter what they did, it's always cool to like, for me to like look at behind the scenes of like movies and like songs and albums and stuff like that. That's like, this is, this album sold 30 million copies and you talk, and the producers are like, yeah, I hate this part. <laughs> or like, this was a mistake. We were going to, we were going to take this out. We hated this. We kept it anyway, and it's everybody's favorite part. It's like, that's really how stuff gets made and stuff gets done. Mm-hmm. So, like, yeah, people showing up with their best sort of energy forward is the only real way that things happen. Everything else is putting a whole lot of energy into, like, pretending. Oh, my God. Imagine what life would be like if we got rid of our pretending energy oh and God. put it towards our productive energy. <laughs> It's, it's so many things that wouldn't, that we really would be like, oh, this really doesn't matter. <laughs> like, this really <laughs> doesn't matter at all. It's, it's yeah. wild. It's like um, it's like that movie Hidden Figures. I don't know if you ever seen it. I did. The one with- who worked for NASA. Mm-hmm. It's so trippy, like, to think they're in, a, they're in a race with another country to the moon. They're like, time is of the essence. And it's like the best mathematicians in the place- have to get slowed down because of racism. And it's just like, how inefficient is racism and sexism? Dude, it's so how inefficient. How much money do we lose? Because it's like, we're intentionally blocking the best people in the room just right. for the optics of it. Like, it's so crazy. I like. I really wonder, I don't know, I kind of believe in past lives. And I really wonder like what it was like back then back then, even though time is nonlinear or whatever then is now too. But like how people believed that, like who got sold that story and like why did, let's just say it was Mark from accounting who started this whole white supremacy story. (laughs) So many people bought in. Yeah, well. Why did everyone buy in? This is ridiculous. I feel like, well, to me, I feel like how empires and stuff get built traditionally throughout history is through some sort of like exploitive labor practice or some junk like that. And you got to talk people into that. Like people kind of, I feel like innately are like not going to go for that. Like if it's just like, yeah, these people are all slaves. You got to convince them that they're different from you. Like they're not a person, they're less. Once you create that narrative and then it, and then it makes people more comfortable. And that's just everywhere I look. Most people I've, I know almost no one who's like a really hardcore deliberate, just bigot of any real sort. Like I really hate these people. It's just like, this is my life. I'm comfortable in this life. This is what I know life to be about. 
And in order for that to work, these people need to be strange. These people need to be less than me. These people need to, you know, women need to be like this. Gay people need to be like this. Like everything has to fit into those boxes that I know. Otherwise, I have to question this whole thing that I'm doing. You know what I mean? And that, the thought of that is so scary. Most of the time people are fighting against just that of like, oh my God, civilization will crumble as I know it if there's not just two genders. That, you know, like that. So what would now happen? This, now <laughs> this bathroom thing, I'm really serious about this. And it's like, you're really not. But, you know, this supports your whole your whole sort of being. Right. And white supremacy yeah. in general as a thing has, I, I'm not going to say it's failed white people the most because that's kind of hyperbolic to say. But like. It hasn't helped white people. Yeah. Like it's a very small little corner of white people who really get the benefit of this even if we talk about slavery like it's not like every white person in america had a slave it's like not really there were these big sort of what could be considered now like corporations there were these families Mm -hmm. who had enough money to have slaves but guess what that's just like anything else that changes the if, if i if i own a cotton farm and i'm just me and then you own a plantation and you have these this free labor source that works round the clock and we're competing in the marketplace, I'm getting squashed here. But if you can convince me that we're on the same team because I'm white and you're white, then when when it's like, they're going to take away slaves, that's actually a good thing for you. But you're not thinking of it like that. You're thinking of it like, I'm a part of this white club. And so you go to war for slaves that you don't have. The whole president of the, you know, the whole Donald Trump presidency was just him just running this hustle on white people. Like, I'm one of you. And it's like, he is not helping you at all. Not oh even God. a little bit. I have, I have, it makes me so, that whole thing makes me so mad. Um, it really is a con job. And it's this All thing day. where, you know, like this whole podcast is based upon the idea that I'm a know-it-all and I give unsolicited advice because that's what I do. And like what Donald Trump did was sell people on this idea that he's this benevolent paternalistic father and why he's so polarizing is because the people who don't believe in it are like, how can you see that as this, like it is, it's abusive. How can you believe in that this abusive behavior is actually in your, in your benefit? And it, it goes back to giving people that story that they want. We already have this idea set up that, you know, as a nation that Christian values and being a good person and all this stuff is very much related to there being a, a, a wealthy white man in charge mm-hmm. um, to the point where we, they really, they really rebranded. Think about how wild this is. They really rebranded Donald Trump as like some sort of pillar of Christian values. I don't even know how that happened. And I'm just like that the dude the 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 dude with like three different marriages and the the who's gaudy and selfish and greedy and like synonymous with these things his entire life. He's never mm-hmm. been synonymous with giving or charity or kindness or grace or that's not his Compassion. bag. He <laughs> makes a whole lot of money. The people he makes money with don't even make money. <laughs> like mm-hmm. he's this train wreck of a of a guy who just always gets his way. But the idea that he is a white dude, um, a straight white dude, is a much more comfortable image that people have of like, oh, these are 
these are Christ this is a Christian a Christian person. Uh, I was like, that is crazy. That's the yeah. I mean one of the I don't want to talk about politics for forever, but one of the yeah, things forever. that made me crazy when Donald Trump was running against Hillary Clinton is that they would say Hillary Clinton is unlikable and I'm like, have you seen <laughs> too funny it's ridiculous okay mm. so what is some advice that you've gotten from somebody that has turned out to be just terrible batshit awful advice oh man that's a great question um so i'm in like a father's group on uh, on facebook and we like mm-hmm. talk about being fathers and all that stuff um and we was basically having a conversation about like um, sort of switching the roles in the traditional sort of gender roles, going going through a period where I, like I wasn't earning that much money, so mm-hmm. my focus is now to be like the primary caretaker for my kids and kind of support, be that support person while my wife earns money, mm-hmm. um, you know. And and this brother was just basically like, you know, women don't women don't like that. Like if you're putting yourself if you're putting yourself in a position where you're not earning and she's earning more than you, then like, she's going to resent you for it and it's going to hurt the relationship. And she might even wind up like leaving you and you made this commitment to like do this, but you really need to stop that and like try to go back to work or try to like make money. And it was just basically like, yeah, I can see where your concern is in that, in that sense of like, if I'm stopping my progress to like, if, if I'm not progressing and she is, is that going to be an issue? But the truth is like, we're, we're a family. And if I, if I create this dynamic where my success is, um, is opposed to her success. And it's like, instead of me taking my energy and being like, I'm putting it into my family and making sure my family is good during this time. And then when I have an opportunity to to transition into working more, working more, but instead I'm spiteful about like, oh, you're going off to work. Well, I'm going to I'm going to work, too, just so that I can compete with you. It's just the worst way that that is the type of thing that's going to make her resentful. That is the type of thing that's going to make everything that's going to make my success seem less than to make it be, you know, where we're going to constantly be comparing how well is she doing versus how well I'm doing if I set that dynamic? Mm. Uh, yeah, it is terrible advice. <laughs> <laughs> Don't compete with your wife. That's a terrible thing yeah, to do. No. Don't do it. I'm, I'm not married, but I have I, I have a suspicion that wouldn't go so well. <laughs> Defeats the purpose, really. <laughs> Want a partner for life so I can compete with you? Oh no! Thanks for saying yes. Now, <laughs> now, who's on? Who's friend. winning? Are, <laughs> am I winning this marriage, or are you winning this the marriage? Gauntlet has been thrown down. <laughs> um, you know, the last thing I ask people is, well, I I have two questions. The first is, how can we support you? Like, what support or help? do you need in taking this thing that these things that you're up to, to the next level? Oh, wow. Well, um, I'm on, I'm on social media. I'm on Instagram. I'm on Facebook. It's just Mark James Heath. Mark like the Bible, James like the Bible, Heath like the Joker. 
Um, mm. And yeah, uh, any information that you have about um, particularly resources for people who are homeless or transient, people who are going through recovery, mental health recovery, substance abuse recovery, people who are um, looking to sort of like get education or get back to work or, you know, find like reliable, sustainable income sources that are like legal and beneficial to them. Any of that information that you have, um, especially if you happen to be in Chicago, but just, you know, following me on on social media and then sort of just constantly sharing those things with me or, or making those things available so that I can kind of spread that out as much as possible is extremely helpful. Information about like grants and funding and all of that type of stuff for people who are just trying to improve their situation is great. Um, and then at some point I'm going to, you know, be doing shows and things like that, that I'll be able to like reach out to you and say, Hey, come and support the show. But yeah, just the initial like sort of linking up is, is extremely helpful. Yeah, I like I like that it's the possibility of rather than the actual do this one thing. Mm-hmm. Okay, and then the last thing I have for you is um, how will you know when you've succeeded? I succeed all the time. Um, it's a constant thing. It's just like uh, if you were if you were seven years old and you're like, I want to be a doctor when I grow mm-hmm. up. It's like, well, how do you become a doctor? Well, you go to med school. How do you get into med school? You have to go to college. How do you get into college? You get good grades and you get into college. So every time you turn your homework in, you're successful. Every time you pass the test, you're successful. You know, it's and it just keeps going. And you eventually are a doctor. And every day that you help patients, you succeed. So I put myself in a pretty cool position where it's like I get to see the people that I work with. Live comedy is live. So it's like, they laughing, I'm winning. Like, it's just, yeah. it's just like that. I love that. Um, it's so, I just love the the mindset of being successful, not achieving success. Mm-hmm. Like, it's a way of being. It's not a thing to get. It's not a brass ring or. Right. Because the hope yeah. is, um, is that I'll just keep getting older and meeting people and, and, find myself standing in these like really cool intersections and that's when it'll be like, Oh, there's a thing to achieve here. There's an event to throw. There's a, a, a life, a memory to make at this particular moment. But like, yeah. So that's all my career really is, is me trying to put myself in those positions so that mm. those things can happen so I can do them. So as long as I'm in that position, then I'm, I'm succeeding. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for doing the show. It was such a pleasure to talk with you. Yeah, thank you. This is really cool. I appreciate it. This is Not Advice is brought to you by me, Erin Conlin. If you are interested in learning more about my coaching practice or how we might be able to work together, please visit erinconlin.com. This podcast would not have happened without production support from Cedar Cathedral Narrative Studio. 